0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
1: You know, we are learning more every day about all sorts of things that we've had to deal with for hundreds of years. Different types of physical illnesses, different types of mental illnesses. And you can add now schizophrenia to that as well. For many years, decades really, it was so misunderstood. But we're even, you know, being able to push the envelope of what we understand about this illness as well. And we're going to learn more about it this morning. Johnny Thompson joins us now, professor of philosophy at Oxford University and author of uh, Mini Philosophy, a small book of big ideas. Johnny, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: This is fascinating work that you're doing here because with schizophrenia, do we fully understand even what it is all about and how it impacts people?
2: Uh, not really. Um, so as with kind of all mental health conditions, there, um, there are many kind of varied manifestations across different patients, really. Uh, the kind of neuropathologies behind it are quite confusing and uh, kind of yet unmapped. We have ideas, but um, well, my kind of focus was really about the kind of the stereotypes and the kind of the biases and the, uh, the misrepresentation, particularly in popular culture, of um, schizophrenia. So uh, I came at it from a philosopher's point of view, Right, and uh, talking about 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 the concepts we have of of certain kind of mental health conditions, particularly. So, all the concepts we have will come from some source. Um, so, often that'll be some kind of first hand experience. So, if you think of like a, like a tree or or a, or a mountain, that will be from some kind of experience you have had yourself of that. Um, and of course, this is no different for mental health conditions as well. So, for things like depression or anxiety or even things like anorexia. Um, They are sufficiently common now in society that I suspect that your image of them will come from someone either you know personally or possibly even yourself or someone in your family. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I think that the uh, the stigma and the misrepresentation of those is on the decline because I think we're more aware of those kind of issues. But what happens with associative identity uh, disorder or bipolar disorder where they're uh, still uh, much less common in everyday society? So it's Actually, more common than you probably think. It's estimated around that, and uh, have more schizophrenia. Um, and of course, hopefully, we'll have time to talk about. You know, there are grades of that and different varieties of schizophrenia. But um, so when you so you face a problem here. So how? Wh- where do your where does your idea or your stereotype of these mental health conditions come from? And often that's going to be some kind of third person account um, or third party. And for most people, uh, most of the time, I suspect that'll be a movie right. or um, popular culture.
1: I, I want to just yeah. go back to something that you just said there is that there's different types of schizophrenia. See, like I think even saying that would be news mm-hmm. to a lot of people.
2: Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's important to note that. So essentially, early stage schizophrenia is really hard to diagnose and identify both for the uh, for the the patient and also for the medical profession. Um, so as I was researching for this, uh, one, one of the cases I came across was someone who manifested certain conditions of paranoia and anxiety, which alone aren't uh, necessarily that big an issue. And that lots of, lots of the population will have uh, some form of that across their lifetime. And so what happened, they were diagnosed with a, mo- uh, a mood disorder, sorry, and they were given some medications and told to go away from that. And of course, what happened is it got worse. And this is the thing, for early stage schizophrenia, it is essentially a, a very uh, extreme form of uh, paranoia or anxiety of course, um, what makes schizophrenia schizophrenia is when it kind of manifests into kind of um, hallucinations, which is the next stage. Um, And so, again, I I have to stress, it does vary from person to person, from patient to patient. But uh, it tends to be that auditory hallucinations are the the first level of hallucination. And and then that that kind of uh, progresses into being uh, visual hallucinations. Um, So they... The auditory hallucinations, they'll vary from person to person and they will even vary in tone as well. So perhaps we get this idea that schizophrenia is, is an overwhelmingly uh, negative experience for, for everyone. But actually there are cases where the auditory and visual hallucinations can be positive. Um, there have been cases where people have heard voices of someone who's actually quite um, reassuring or really? even funny. And yeah, yeah. Um, and likewise with the visual hallucinations, I came across this story Um of a Mexican American lady who uh, who would see her dead children come back to her pretty much after every dinner, and they would reassure her that they were okay in the afterlife, and she was herself reassured by this experience. So, yeah, they can they can be a positive experience, but I, I do have to say that you know schizophrenia isn't isn't, isn't a, a positive thing for most people. They are it is a uh, a negative experience which has very kind of like. Um, uh kind of so so just for example uh jason jepson in his article on schizophrenia who is a schizophrenic himself he said that all of these the voices and 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 the visual hallucinations he had are are out to get him to defeat him and to put him down and that's overwhelmingly the experience of most schizophrenics It's it's a manifestation of an underlying anxiety and paranoia and
1: uh johnny do you think we're making more of an effort uh today to understand that Right. It used to be that we had mm. one thought about that and we that was it. That, that that was our one experience with it, as you were pointing out. And that's what we were going to think about it. But now we seem to make more of an effort to say, well, wait a minute. No, there's there's more going on here.
2: Mm, I think so. I, I certainly think so. Um, again, as, as, as I said at the start, uh, if, if our only idea of schizophrenia comes from uh, like popular culture, essentially, I mean, with, with schizophrenia, you have one one movie which really stands out as the kind of the big popular culture, and that's a, the film uh, A Beautiful Mind, right, yes. where Russell Crowe um, uh, represents John Nash from the uh, late nineteen forties and early fifties, who, yeah, had schizophrenia, and in that movie, of course, you know, Hollywood's, Hollywood's um, aim is to make an entertaining film they want to make something which is interesting and so they don't feel like they have a duty to representing the conditions properly or even the duty to um to uh, be sympathetic to the conditions. so in that movie you have nash who actually um i don't know if you've seen the movie yourself there's a, there's a scene where uh, he he sees so what he thinks the soviet police coming to arrest him while, as he's doing a speech and this is obviously a very extreme form of visual hallucination but uh, actually in nash's own account and in nash's own uh, diaries this didn't happen he he had what we might referred to as a kind of mild to moderate schizophrenia where he he heard voices and he had this paranoia but he didn't have necessarily those kind of whole scale of visual hallucinations so if, of course, your only account, your, your only uh, understanding of schizophrenia comes from a movie like *A uh, Beautiful Mind, then, yes, yeah, you're going to see it as being only this very extreme form of um, schizophrenia. But I think you're right. I think we are trying to make an, an effort to understand uh, not just schizophrenia, but I think mental health um, more broadly, actually. I think we're much more kind of sympathetic to the idea of neurodiversity and the idea that um, necessar- the stigmatization of mental health is something of the past.
1: But the hallucination part that you talked about is so important there because I think some mm. people struggle with understanding, well, why don't people just take medication, right? Why don't they just take it? Yeah. But th- with schizophrenia, there's also the key in that the med- for some people, the medication is ne- not necessarily something that they want.
2: Well, absolutely. And and that's actually one of the things which um, uh, Russell Crowe's character Nash does in, in, in A Beautiful Mind. Yeah. I have to stress, actually, here that one of the possibly the the negative uh, stereotypes presented in *A Beautiful Mind* is is the uh, the the negativity of the medication. And because he says in, there's one scene in the movie where he says he's worried and that medication is dulling his, you know, undoubtedly brilliant mind. Um, and that might have been true in the '40s, um, but I, I have to say that medication today for Very different, almost yeah. all yeah exactly and it's overwhelmingly a positive experience and so there is a risk with a movie like that if you if you're emphasizing the uh, the the dulling or the negative effects of certain types of medication that actually it uh, puts people off taking medication and as i say people who who have moderate to extreme forms of schizophrenia are, are overwhelmingly uh, benefiting from medication and um i should actually say about the medication point of view that uh you, you mentioned the hallucinations and that is essentially one of the, the hallmarks and, and, and the defining characteristics of schizophrenia and all of the medications or most of the medication I should say that deal with schizophrenia are antipsychotic um, drugs. They will they will tackle the hallucinations as being the uh, the positive manifestations of schizophrenia. Um so I don't know how much you want to go into the into no, that's the, just the, so... the brain chemistry of it.
1: No, that's just it just it's a different type of philosophy. I know that's what you study and specialize in too here, but this really mm. speaks to how everybody needs to think about these things differently, doesn't it?
2: Well, absolutely. Yeah. And, and seeing it's, in, according to mental health and mental illnesses and mental diseases, I think that's really important. And like a disease, you know, it, there are, there are underlying biochemical, uh, factors which are causing this. And I think, um, the popular culture kind of representation of mental health conditions as being dangerous kind of uh, insane or kind of like homicidal is obviously very dangerous And so it goes back to psycho in the 1960s or someone who had dissociative identity disorder and it, it went all the way through to rain man and even into oh, beautiful yeah. mind and i think i think uh, we we're, we're doing better with today i think i think modern tv programs and modern movies are much more sympathetic to the idea um but I think, yeah, this, this negative representation of stereotypes and mental health has always been damaging. But as I say, Hollywood's, Hollywood hasn't got a duty to the medical profession. They haven't got a duty to being uh, honest. They have a duty to entertainment. And being subtle and appreciating the grades and the nuances of mental health is is not really a movie maker's um, ambition.
1: <laughs> no, but that's something <laughs> we can strive for instead. Johnny, thank you so much for your time.
2: Yeah. Thank you very much for having me.
1: This is Mornings with Simi. We have a lot to talk about with Vaughn Palmer this morning from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn.
3: And good morning, Simi and God. I do love that song. That song? <laughs> it's perfect for so, today.
1: That's <laughs> what I said too. That's what I said. Uh, first off, I just have to give a shout out to our listener, Dave, who sent me an email yesterday with a high school picture of a young Vaughn Palmer. Uh, he said he doesn't know you, but he found it in his yearbook. He was going through his yearbook and he saw it. So he sent it to me. You look adorable, Vaughn. Well,
3: I gather the Vancouver Sun's still using that picture on my column in the paper. At least I've been accused of still using my high school yearbook picture.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Having seen paper, it, so. I can say that is not the case. No, no, no. Yeah,
3: but it's about. 20 years old, so <laughs> closer to high school than it is the way I look
1: today. All right, let's get started. So BC Fairies, I did rant about this this morning. Uh, I don't know what's going on in their communications department over there, Vaughn, but we had a confirmed interview with them for the last week. I've talked about it on the show, and then all of a sudden yesterday we're told, oh, no, 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 that was just a request. No, it's not confirmed, and, and they're doing a media availability for everybody today, which I welcome but I'm thinking, what the heck is going on over there?
3: Well, that's message control. And I, it it pervades this government. And availabilities are rationed and questions are rationed. And messages, uh, press releases and announcements uh, are narrower and leave stuff out. So... Uh, you're the latest victim of it. Uh, we had a case uh, a few weeks ago, a colleague of ours, Penny Dafflow, CTV, right. gets her hands on an FOI, on uh, serious cases of harassment of employees in the ambulance service. Uh, she asked for the report, takes them two months to give it to her, and they give it to everybody on the same day. They give her just a couple of hours' notice that it's coming out, uh, and they did it on a Friday afternoon. So... It it's a pattern with this government, Simi, and they get away with it all the time. So, I know the listener; uh, lots of them don't have a hell of a lot of sympathy for news organizations about what we're up against trying to get the stories. But the thing today, I mean, yes, I got an invitation yesterday, Simi, and I'm going to be.
4: Good. They're
3: doing this in person. This tells you how much trouble BC Fair yeah. is in. They're actually doing a news conference in person with actual television cameras there at hmm, let's see I'm supposed to show up in the lobby of the BC Ferries building in Victoria at 10:15 a.m. so uh, this is going to be strange I hope they have news news uh, name tags on all the executives since most of them have been seen publicly for the longest time I mean let's give the fairies credit for getting ahead of it, finally, and dealing with it. But let's also acknowledge that it's been two weeks since BC Ferries announced that the coastal celebration was being taken out of service for the second time, and that is what triggered the nightmare of wait times and gobbledygook on the the website And this is the first time today that the CEO has been available to talk in person and answer questions.
1: Yeah. Two weeks where they have let the story spiral out of control because of the lack of information, the lack of having just somebody in, in out there and actually talking. That's all we need, right? Somebody out there talking.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And look, uh, the government uh, fired the CEO a year ago. They appointed a, party person as chair of the board. Presumably, they gave directions on how they wanted this thing turned around since they said they fired the previous CEO because of waiting times and problems. And here we are a year later, and it's taken them two weeks to come out in public and come clean about their problems and take media questions. Uh, You know, I... I'm a political columnist. I don't actually need them to talk to me in person in order to write about stuff or say things on the radio. But again, I've heard repeatedly from our colleagues, especially in television, that just getting someone to come on in person on camera and address things, you know, they want to do it by Zoom or by phone or whatever. They try to maintain as much distance as they can. I, one other thing that came out in the overnight coverage, which I do want to flag, <clears throat> head of the Ferry Workers Union, McNally, he says uh, he had a talk to the ferry CEO Jimenez yesterday. And Jimenez assured him that there will be front line support in the ferry system this weekend. So that's a reference to something the union has complained about. Their members have to be there because they sell the tickets and they staff the ships, and they're the ones who've been taking the heat from the public. So I take the reference to there will be frontline support as a reference to an assurance that managers will be available to talk to the public, that they won't be expecting the poor person in the booth selling the tickets to take all the heat. There will be direct attempts by the fairies' brass to communicate to the public. I hope that's the case.
1: Yeah, fingers crossed on that one. So that press conference coming up at 1030 this morning, I know we'll be hearing a lot about it. So Vaughn, we get this press conference yesterday. This one was when I saw what it was all about. I thought, well, this is this is huge. How come we haven't heard about this before? Now this is this massive data breach.
3: Yes, a massive data breach back in the spring. Health Employers Association of BC, which is the umbrella organization for all of everyone who works in healthcare, and uh, three of their systems hacked, apparently, uh, invaded back in the spring. Uh, a warning, uh, caution right off the top this is not private information of health patients that the hackers got access to. It's the employees. So your uh, SIN and your driver's license number and so forth. It's not just everybody who works in the healthcare system who's potentially compromised here. Uh, It's also everybody who applied for a job in the healthcare system they think is included. So we get to a number of 250,000 people, as many as that. They say they don't know Uh, to what extent the data was taken or what was done with it. They say there's been no call for ransom. I mean, sometimes the people who steal this stuff uh, come back and say, we'll give it back to you if you pay us. That hasn't happened. But the great fear here, Simi, is that people, uh, whoever's behind this, will use the information to steal identities or gain access to people's personal data in other ways, Uh, everyone in the system uh, they uh, you know they're just sort of alerting them at this point they're promising them they're saying change your passwords of course and they're promising people in the system that um, there will be monitoring in place to make sure that it's not abused in the time ahead but this is open-ended, Simi. There's a lot more we need to know about this. And what can I say, except it happens too often in the world we
1: live in. Yeah, it's so many questions, though. Like how long, how long had there been access before they were alerted? And then how long did they let yeah. everybody know? Like, do we know any of that?
3: Uh, we know bits of it, but not a lot. And they admitted that. I think what happened here, and it, it's what tends to happen, is they make a judgment call. We better go to public and tell everybody as soon as we can. And and you could argue that maybe they didn't tell everybody soon enough, but they are telling everybody so that people are on notice personally, you know, watch your bank accounts, watch what happens to your identity. Uh, if you can change passwords, change passwords and all that. Uh, so this is early warning and obviously we need to know more. Um, I guess the one thing I would say about it, Simi, about data security and data protection is everybody's struggling with this there's a front page story in the new york times on sunday saying the u.s defense department believes that it's possible that chinese hackers have uh, planted malware into the systems that manage power water supply and communications at american bases And the Defense Department in the States is worried that that if it comes to a military confrontation with China, uh, its own systems may not work. So, you know, what can you say? Uh, Everyone's dealing with it, but uh, it's no less sobering for all that. Uh, We've got another warning here that governments, uh, which hold an awful lot of our personal information, need to do more to protect it.
1: Also, uh, we should mention that Auditor General report as well, because it's the same situation.
3: Yeah, uh, Auditor General uh, Michael Pickup uh, picked one BC college at random, so Vancouver Island University, the one that uh, is based in Nanaimo and has campuses around the island. And he had a look at how they were doing protecting again the information of hmm, 12,000 students and 1,500 employees. And he found three faults. He faulted them three ways. They're not doing enough. He told them, you've got to start doing more. And they say they will, right? But the one thing that really jumped out in Pickup's presentation yesterday, Simi, was not just that they're not doing enough to fend off cyber attacks and protect information. He said, I just picked them, my staff picked them at random. He doesn't doubt. He didn't say he knows for sure but it raises the likelihood that if he had audited somebody else in the public sector, he would have found the same lapses.
1: That's terrible though. That's terrible. You can pick anybody at random and you would have these kinds of gaps and breaches. Yeah.
3: Yeah. No, I mean, the auditor general is doing his job and clearly needs to do more of it. And it's not the first time. I mean, you can go back to, uh, times columnist reports today, uh, a dozen years ago, The Information and Privacy Commission, Elizabeth Denham, reported on a case where a a drive was stolen, a drive storing data was stolen from the University of Victoria. And again, huge amount of potential compromises. And I mean, as an individual, you never really know. Until something happens. In a bizarre case, Simmy, I went on holiday a few years ago and came back to discover that eighteen hundred dollars worth of beef jerky had been charged to my credit card. What? In Florida. And I wasn't anywhere near Florida. You know, I like beef jerky, but let's not get carried away. And, you know, I went to the credit card company and they said, oh, God, this is, you know, somebody got a hold of your credit card number and we're going to change it and your passwords and all that. And I did. So, you know, it was no, it was an inconvenience to me and a nuisance. But I think that's the one that got me aware for the first time that this stuff that you give to credit card companies and employers and the healthcare system yeah and people you buy stuff from if if anybody gets at it you don't know what they're going to do with it or when they're going to when it's going to come back to haunt you
1: exactly Vaughn. thank you
3: bye-bye Simi
1: This is Mornings with Simi. Craft beer is a very big deal in Canada, and and very much so here in BC. The industry is booming. And one of the reasons why has to do with the ingredients for that craft beer, including hops. BC hops are a huge factor. Joining us now to talk more about that is Ken Mountson, who's a general manager of Barnside Brewing Company. Ken, thanks for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. How's Barnside doing these days? Um...
5: The summertime is always a good time for craft beer, so uh, it's definitely we're seeing you know we're seeing a real strong crowd visiting our brewery. Um, We're a bit of a destination out in the farmland, so but we're you know close to we're still close to town, so we get a lot of traffic for that. Um, But you know the the craft beer industry as a whole is is a little soft right now. I mean it has been for the last several quarters um, North America wide. And you know, lots of reasons for that uh, RTDs and and just the you know a bit more of a movement sober curious movement and moving away from alcohol and some of the younger generations. so you know there's there's still lots of challenges and you know it's obviously a heavily taxed product so that creates another level of challenges for for craft brewers so. You know, it's it, it's it's a difficult industry.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it. It's also, I guess, challenging as well when you're trying to do things differently, right? And you want perhaps some like locally made ingredients to go into your beer. Is it challenging to sometimes find all those locally made ingredients?
5: Yeah, and I think the challenge isn't for lack of quality. Um, it's just that the market hasn't evolved to a stage where there's a, you know a great demand that will you know increase the need for a greater supply. And there's lots of reasons for that, but uh you know, we're just such a small speck on the on the radar compared to, you know, the largest growing regions in the world, like Yakima, which is, you know, just directly south of us. Um, you know, there's maybe thirty thousand acres in production there, although they are pulling back a little bit this last couple of years. And you know, in BC we're we're in the low hundreds, so you know, there's a huge difference and you know, we can't supply all of all of the craft brewing needs in BC, but, but it is a, it's a small group that is growing. And I think brewers are uh, recognizing that the uniqueness and the quality of the product. And, you know, we have to find other ways to compete in terms of, of price and, and, you know, there's lots of things that can be done to, to improve our position in that area.
1: Right. So if we could have more BC grown hops though, that would, that would be a benefit to the industry, wouldn't
5: it? Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think, we've seen so many things over the past four or five years that have sort of accentuated the need to, you know, take care of stuff at home, make sure you have your own supply of things um, so that we're not at the whims of the global market. And, you know, we have that capability and, you know, BC while hops is feels like an emerging industry here, you know, it's a reemerging industry. It was a, a, you know, a very robust industry in the the early part of last century through forties and fifties. And then it really got just swallowed up by, you know, Yakima and and Big Beer and, you know, the loss of small breweries at that time. And now with the proliferation of craft breweries, it's given an opportunity for, you know, people to get back into the business and, and it is growing. It's a, it's a slow organic growth at this stage, which is, which is good. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's, it's feasible at that stage.
1: Right, because there is this, the hops growing program, the BC hops program at Kwantlen. I know KPU is doing this. What kind of a difference, though, do you think that makes? Like, what does, what does the hop industry in BC, if we revive it, what do they have to do to help the craft beer industry?
5: Well, I think, you know, with the KPU program in particular, um, you know, if we're able to come up with something, some unique varieties, something that is distinctly bc that's a win for everybody because there is going to be a greater uptake and interest from the craft brewers, and it's obviously something that they can't get elsewhere. So suddenly that puts us on a on a different playing field, and really it elevates everything that all of the growers are doing. You know, to have that that kind of a flagship product or products. So you know we're a few few years into the process right now, and I mean the the returns are pretty cool because there's there's really actually a lot of unique genetic material out there because because of the breeding programs that we're being. Uh, you know uh, done here back in the 40s there's a lot of just wild plants that have been out there sort of breeding on their own and doing their own thing and so you know utilizing some of that genetic material and and using it to you know crossbreed and try to create new strains new varieties um, it's really exciting and it's such a great local story you know there is a great local marketing aspect to it beyond the Hopefully, what, the, you know, the flavor profile and the aromatics and, and the bitterness of the hops.
1: That is so amazing to me that that could make that much of a difference, Ken, though, right? Like having just a unique type of hop that would make a difference to the beer product.
5: I, you know what? I think it's just it's where the industry is. And, and I'm not necessarily even saying it's a good thing. I mean, that the whole hop industry, that is part of the problem. In, in, you know, the big growing regions is they've created a marketing machine that, you know, the desire to have the newest and greatest and latest all the time. And agriculturally, that's not really feasible. I mean, hops are three years to get, you know, from planting to to get to a reasonable yield and, you know, ripping out varieties every year and trying to replant is a very expensive process. So, you know, it's you've kind of created something that's sort of hard to follow up on. But, you know, ultimately, there's we're everybody's looking for an angle, something different they can offer their customers. And, you know, that's, as I said earlier, it's, it's a tough market out there for, for craft beer. So that's a way to kind of get people's attention. And if we can help brewers do that, that puts us in a good position.
1: Well, I certainly learned a lot this morning. Ken, thank you so much for joining us.
5: No problem. Thanks for having me, Simmy.
1: That's Ken Mallinson, who's a general manager of Barnside Brewing Company, talking about craft beer and the hop industry, which used to be very big uh, here in the Fraser Valley in particular. But that changed over the years. And now they are trying to revive that. And they want to work with, you know, some of the hop farmers to really get something that is unique for B.C., but that they can rely on to be able to produce a great product, too. This is Mornings with Simi. For the last couple of weeks on the show, we've kind of been touching on the issue of gas prices. And that's because we couldn't help but notice how these have been going up and down. So I drove by one station, what, like a week and a bit ago, and I saw $1. seventy-seven, And I thought, what a deal. Yeah, there were people lined up for it. And then two days later... It was two dollars a liter. So I thought, oh, that's what they were doing, right? They were softening us up before raising those prices to two dollars. And then last weekend I was seeing dollar seventy nine, dollar eighty-seven, I think is what I saw, you know, and got also got filled up at. And now more like two dollars and five cents a liter. That's the highest we've seen in a while, actually. So what's going on? Is it the crude oil prices? What's going on in the markets? And once again, is it just us here in Metro Vancouver? paying that premium that we always seem to pay. Let's break all this down. Dr. Kent Fellows is with us now, an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Okay, maybe you can help us out with this then. What's going on with gas prices right now?
6: So there are a lot of things that impact gasoline prices, especially in your part of our world in, in Vancouver. Um, I think the, the fluctuations that you're sort of seeing over the last couple of weeks, um, some of that is, is the underlying crude oil price. So that would be the, uh, the Western Canada Select price that's set in Edmonton. Um, but a lot of that is actually frictions in the supply chain, getting the fuel from refineries in Edmonton to the lower
1: mainland. Okay. And so what's the problem then?
6: So, this is actually a problem that uh, started brewing around 2015, uh, and it uh, revolves around the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Um, So, there is that pipeline in place. Most of the fuel consumed in the Lower Mainland actually comes into it on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, um, and that pipeline just isn't big enough, which we know because uh, they've been trying to twin it for quite some time. But around 2015, there was a rule change uh, by the National Energy Board um, that, for various technical reasons, uh, means that they're actually shipping less refined product on that pipeline now and more crude oil for export. And so when you cut the, the shipments of refined products, when you, when you cut the amount of gasoline coming in to the lower mainland, now it has to come in on alternative uh, modes of transportation. And so that's barging up from the U.S. or coming in via rail or, in some cases, even via truck. That's more expensive, which means wholesale gasoline prices are higher, which means retail gasoline prices are higher.
1: Okay, so then why is it, Dr. Fellows, that we also hear here in Vancouver that, oh, it's the refinery down in Washington State that's causing problems, or they're doing maintenance at such and such a refinery. So is it just everywhere? If there's any kind of an issue, we're going to have to pay more here?
6: so it's it's definitely more of an impact when it's somewhere closer like that um, because you just look at where the supply chain comes from so like I said a lot of that gasoline the most of that gasoline is coming from uh, Edmonton area refineries in Alberta but you do get volumes from Seattle volumes from um, from the US and so anytime there's that disruption what it means is there's just less fuel available for purchase and so the prices go up to ration that so you don't end up with fuel outages um, so that can be at the wholesale level if it's uh, if it's an impact to a refinery or like I said to the pipeline um, and then that filters through to retail prices as uh, as your retailers have to pay more for the gasoline they're buying they charge you more for the gasoline they're selling you.
1: Okay so is this just a like because Metro Vancouver is uniquely positioned that way is that just we just have to chalk it up to that?
6: So, in terms of the level, yeah, um, when you look at Metro Vancouver versus, particularly versus the rest of Western Canada, so comparing it to you know other provincial capitals, um, you know Edmonton, Regina, Winnipeg. Um, you guys have really high prices, uh, and a we lot do. of that is just the, the difficulty in getting that fuel in, into uh, into the province. Um, you know, you look at the difference between Calgary and Edmonton, and it's exactly what the pipeline toll is. It's you know, it's I think it's a cent or a cent and a half. You look at the difference between Edmonton and Vancouver, and that pipeline constraint can play all the way up to sort of 18, 20, 25 cents difference, and then even more acute um, when you get uh, when you get specific shortages. So it really is a supply chain issue. that the the pipeline just isn't big enough. Um, You can layer onto that some some tax differences. Uh, Alberta right now, we're not paying a provincial fuel tax because our government brought in tax relief uh, to to eliminate that tax at the retail side of things. Um, So that makes a bit of a difference. But but even comparing to Winnipeg and Saskatchewan, uh, yeah, you guys are high. (laughs) Uh,
1: Thanks. Yes, we do know that. Everybody (laughs) knows that when we drive by the gas station, we feel it all the time. So is there any relief in sight for us here.
6: Well, it's hard to know for sure. Uh, so the, the Trans Mountain pipeline is twinning, um, which is, which is old news. I mean, they've been working on that for quite some time. Um, but we're not sure yet what the tolls are going to look like on that pipeline. And, and that will have a bit of an impact as well. So once the Trans Mountain expansion is finished, uh, my assumption just looking at the data is that those refined fuel shipments will sort of return to their former levels. They'll return to the, to the pre 2015, uh, ratio rather than the post 2015 ratio. Um, and so that'll mean lower or it should mean lower transportation costs to get that gasoline into the province. Um, but how much lower, we don't know yet because we have to wait to see what those final tolls are going to be. And that's going to be dependent on what the final cost of the pipeline is. Uh, and if you've been watching that side of the news, uh, that pipeline is now a lot more expensive than it was originally planned to be. So uh, so that will be uh, an interesting one to watch.
1: Yeah, we're going to end up paying for that, too. Uh, so um, the prices in the states have also been going up, though, right?
6: yeah though no, they have um and again that's uh, that's consistent with that uh, increase in crude oil prices all those prices tend to move together in some way or another, so they they generally base everything off their their um their benchmark price, which is West Texas Intermediate, which is a little bit lower than Western Canada Select, but but these things move with uh, with global shifts. And so certainly, if you compare it to pandemic times, I mean, everyone's up because the crude oil price is, is uh, a lot higher now than it was then. Briefly during that period, we actually had some negative prices for crude oil, which is one of those strange pandemic era things that shows up on data sets.
1: Yeah, I guess so. So, so. Is this something that for the rest of this year do we foresee prices staying steady at this kind of for us anyway that two dollar a liter mark?
6: I would expect that you'll probably bounce around that, um, somewhere between sort of a dollar ninety and, and you know two oh five or, or two ten wherever you are um, right now, <clears throat> because I don't see that there's likely to be a big change in those crude oil prices in the coming months. Um, but uh, I don't have a crystal ball, so uh, so the best I can do is, is guess like everybody else.
1: Well, you don't see them going down, though, right?
6: (laughs) Uh, Not in a big way, no.
1: All right. Well, that's what we need to know. Dr. Fellows, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. And we appreciate you explaining that to us. That's Dr. Kent Fellows, assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary, explaining that Metro Vancouver gas price premium we know we're paying it. There's a lot of different reasons for it, and he just explained very well how we're going to be stuck with it for some time. Looking at that two dollars right now, I saw two, I saw two and I saw two oh five on my way into work this morning, and I think it's probably going to be sticking around that level at least for the rest of the summer, next couple of months. This
0: is Mornings with Simi.
1: Sometimes you're looking at a property for sale and you think, oh, well, it's a little cheaper than I thought it would be. But then you look at the type of property and it says leasehold. Now, typically, that means a 99-year lease, and there are quite a few of these, not just available now, but more of them coming online and coming up for sale. So what are the pros and cons of this? What does it mean when you see 99-year lease on the listing? Well, David Hutchinson is with us now, realtor and owner of David Hutchinson Personal Real Estate Corporation. David, thanks for being here.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me
1: on. Are we seeing more of these? Like, I certainly see quite a few of these listings.
0: Yeah, and, and um, you're exactly right. At, at first glance, they can be like really good deals, and uh, they're not deceiving. It's just it doesn't say right when it pops up, I think, on the public site that it's a, a leasehold. And when you you start clicking around a little more, you realize it's a 99-year lease, and hey, it all seems fine. 99 years is a long time. So th- they can be uh, the right choice for some people.
1: Okay, so what does leasehold mean?
0: Well, you you don't actually... Own the, the land, the dirt below you, like a regular uh, freehold strata. So that can be an issue for for some people, uh, but they're they're a lot cheaper. And if you get them at, for example, Simon Fraser University or UBC, you got such a great location, and those are are very good uh, leases. They're not uh, private leases. Sometimes in the West End, you got these private leases that run to twenty seventy three and they're a little harder to to finance, but with the university leases, it's just like a regular freehold strata, and you vote, and you have a strata corporation, and things like that.
1: Okay, but if you have a 99-year lease, um, what does that mean? Does that mean that when you go to sell it, it's not worth as much, because you would obviously have like a limited amount of time left on that lease?
0: Exactly, and that was always um, the way I thought. When I started uh, a long time ago, 20 years ago in the business, I thought, well, these don't look so attractive, but they do uh, increase in value, and of course, as that ninety-nine year lease comes to an end, you would think the value would go down naturally. But prices have also gone up at the same time, so they kind of balance each other.
1: Okay, and so why are why are there private leasehold situations? You said in some areas.
0: Yeah, it, it's um, years ago. A company called Sheridan they bought these buildings in the West End they're on Harwood and. Uh, they seem like really good deals, and they are, but you don't really have um they're not they're they're prepaid but they're not um uh, strata so you just collectively live in a building, and that private residual landowner is kind of controlling the management of that building, so your maintenance fees are dictated by that residual landowner that management company, so they can they're maintaining the building and you're kind of paying for it as you're living there. Whereas with the university leases, you're you have a strat and you're voting on things and deciding where your money goes with the building.
1: Okay. So then if people see this and they are considering it, David, what do you think they need to know? What like what are the things that we should look for?
0: Well, yeah, you have to because with the private ones you have to see how well the building is maintained because this management company, residual landowner, is maintaining the building and you're kinda of paying for it. Uh, and you want to see what's upcoming because they're going to tell you, okay, this is what you're paying for this year. You don't really have a say with it. But with the university leases, because it's more like a, a free old strata and a strata corporation, you have meetings, you need that uh, special resolution vote, 75%, say, if you want to do a roof or paint hallways and things like that. So you really got to um, look closely at the documentation and, and um, have that due diligence period.
1: Okay, so people, those are the types of questions they should ask. It's like, what type of leasehold is this?
0: Exactly, yeah. And um, can I have a say in the run of my building or is the management company residual landowner just going to tell me what I have to pay for the upcoming year? They're forecasting of the piping. Because some of these uh, private leaseholds in the West End, the buildings are a bit older, so the maintenance fees can, can get pretty high with some of these.
1: Right. And we're going to see more of these, aren't these? You mentioned UBC, SFU. Those are popular locations as well. But there's many First Nations groups that I'm thinking of Sanok, too, here in Vancouver, where those are all going to be leasehold properties. That's
0: the big thing, really. Uh, that That is the future, uh, I think, with these um, First Nation leaseholds and they're doing the As you see in Kitsilano and these other areas, maybe Jericho lands, they're doing the joint ventures with these big developers, Aquilini and West Bank and stuff like that. And these are all going to be leaseholds and they're brand new buildings. So you have a 99 year lease, you got a brand new building, not like the private ones in the West End. So you don't really have any worries for the first, say, 20 years because, you know, a building is new. Uh, after that, um, you might see some depreciation in the 90th year, but, uh, you know, that's a long time, right?
1: That is a long time, true. Um, (laughs) So, so is this something that you would tell your clients, okay, like, yeah, make sure you look at this. This is an option.
0: Yeah, I I just had a, a a client and he's a friend, and I sold him up at SFU, and he's up at the university, and he absolutely loves it up there. He bought a brand new one. He bought it um, just as it opened the doors, so he's got a brand new unit, and you got the view, and, and UBC is such a great location, and really to buy a condo at UBC, uh, on the endowment lands there, it has to be leasehold, so you don't have an option, but to live on a university campus, with a 99-year lease, and most people move within the first 5-10 years anyway, so... Uh, it's not an issue, and he loves it up there.
1: Okay, but what, is there something you need to worry about, or or a concern that you need to just kind of watch out for? Like, can can the terms of that ninety nine year lease be changed? How often does it come up for negotiation, or is that only every ninety nine years?
0: Well, they've they've kind of got it ironed it out because that was the big issue years ago. It's easy; at least the terms can change, and I'm out on the street. But now these um, the lawyers and everyone else have figured it out. These these 99-year current ones are, are pretty strong. Now, the ones in, in the False Creek area, those are not prepaid leases. So these ones I'm talking about now are prepaid leases. So you don't worry for 99 years, it's all prepaid. But, uh, you know, the beautiful False Creek ones, those are not prepaid. So if you want to prepay it for, till 2060 for one of those lovely homes in Falls Creek, for example, it, it can be about $160,000 to to repay that lease. So that could be a little tricky and hard to finance, of course, because the bank wants to see you pay that money.
1: Although these days, I mean, we want to keep the price as low as possible. What do you see happening in the market right now?
0: Well, you know, Vancouver market, it's tricky. You know, real estate usually a slow mover compared to stock market. But I, I say Vancouver real estate is like the stock market. You got to watch it every day. I mean, We had this slow COVID kind of thing, of course, in, in the beginning of the year. Then it's all of a sudden jumped off May, June. And now we're seeing this kind of slowdown, maybe a typical summer slowdown. Who knows interest rates? It's hard to say, but it's definitely petered off a bit.
1: Yeah. Are you seeing the same level of interest though, like heading into the fall, which is usually a busy season? Do you think interest rates are still going to hamper things?
0: I, I still see a lot of people on the sidelines, but you know, if, uh, they, 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 if they reduce interest rates, you could see people just Uh, jump back into the market.
1: We'll see what happens. Thank you so much for your time.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: That's David Hutchinson, a realtor and owner of David Hutchinson, personal real estate corporation. We're talking about leasehold properties. I've been seeing so many of these out there too, and there's going to be more and more coming online. That 99 year lease, prices are always a little bit more kind of competitive than you would see in a regular property for sale. And so, yeah, maybe that is an option for people, but there's definitely a few things, a few questions I think people have sometimes when they see that there.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: It is not easy to get information about what happens to people when they are in police custody or when they're killed in police custody. It's even harder. I mean, it's a lot of freedom of information requests to police departments, to coroner's offices, to government agencies. I mean, you name it. So we're going to talk about a project where they tried to do all of that, where they tried to get that information, try to find out more about the number of people who are killed in police custody in BC, but it's incredibly challenging. Leonard-Claire Cunningham is an independent researcher who has been working on this. It has not been easy. Leonard joins us now to talk about it. Thanks so much for being here.
7: Uh, good morning. Thank you. Thank you for, um, yeah, thank you for inviting us. So- it was impossible to, uh, Rafe Mayer who was one of the early supporters of this project, oh, that a is delightful man.
1: Yeah, what a delightful man! You're so right. That is so good to hear. Tell me, Leonard how how did you gather this information? Because it's not easy getting this kind of information.
7: Um, we were helped by the research uh, librarian Nancy Hanum, uh, one of the best research archivists, and we're quite uh, a few just our backgrounds research. Uh, so we started with that, identified a uh, whole series. There was a series of FOIs, Freedom of Information Requests. And um, so then we submitted, we isolated 25. Now the project is specifically on First Nations deaths in custody. So we isolated 25 incidents, not all of them deaths in custody, that illustrate the situation and from which we could learn and possibly, hopefully, but no, not possibly or hopefully. The goal being um, keep people alive.
1: Now, the project is called Not in the Public Interest, and people can definitely read all about it online to get all the details on it. So what did you find in these cases? Was there any kind of similarity? What, what, were, the, what were the results that surprised you?
7: Uh, the, the biggest single result that surprised me is well, the rest of the world is talking about whether Black Lives Matter. In British Columbia, you have a legal ruling. It's quite clear. What surprised me is the coroner's office which is, their mandate is to prevent death. Um, The absolute refusal to release any information from any of these public bodies. And uh, freedom of information is a cornerstone of democracy. It doesn't matter if I'm a researcher or work with a group, I'm a citizen. I have the right to know. Um, They ruled, all of them. It is not in the public interest. Understand this. Not in the public interest is... But best understood, uh, the working principle, if I stopped 10 people on the street and I said, here's an issue, and it doesn't matter to you even if you're not personally impacted, do you care? And that that's the general understandable. The Office of the Information and Privacy Commission, um, the coroner's office, hired lawyers to fight the release of this information and just basically have a legal ruling that says nobody cares about this issue in British Columbia. Let's also understand one of the primary things we found that is changeable is duty of care. When somebody goes in injured, do they come out alive? these It's one of the most actionable changes we could do in day-to-day operations of policing and in custody that would prevent death. Understand this. The coroner hired lawyers to fight against a project that could prevent death. And oddly enough, at the press conference, um, the days we were preparing, we received a phone call from Megs Patrick. Uh, the coroner's inquest had just concluded Friday into her daughter's death. There's massive questions. She felt, after going through the IIO, Independent Investigations Office, and the coroner's was, um, that her voice hadn't been heard. She was devastated. We invited her to the press conference to speak yesterday.
1: So when you talk about lawyers being hired to prevent you from getting this kind of information, you know, freedom of information requests didn't work. So then how did you get this information? And so what did you find?
7: Um, you can't boil it down to single. We're writing, the goal is more, uh, it's silly, maybe to some, but it's not really like that. These are real people. New stories deserve to be heard. Um, so people can go to the website, read, read each individually. Plus, we have uh, we put together um, some video segments. Artists have helped us and stuff. Uh, so I can't distill it into a single finding. Uh, we have problems. I'll tell you one thing we found the IIO. I wrote the original Frank Paul article. CBC gave me developmental money for an investigative documentary. And that's what started that. <sighs> I'm sorry, I'm just. single biggest thing we found is the present system, or the most important, the present system does not work. The Frank Paul inquiry led to the establishment of civilian oversight. We did not fight for a system. It is going to force families to go through two separate processes in the same death. So just think about it. You've lost a loved one, right. and you have to endure the coroner's inquest and the IIO investigation. And so far, what we're discovering is none of these families are satisfied. They're left with more frustration, anger, and questions. That's, and, uh, that's, that's, that's a, a good point. That's a fundamental betrayal.
1: That's a good point, because we just saw that happen again. We mentioned the Miles Patrick case there. We just saw that happen, right? There's the Independent Investigations Office investigation. That has to be done. And then there's the coroner's office. And you still wait for answers. And now a couple of years have gone by before the family gets any information.
7: Uh, I'm, now, the IIO is in its infancy. And let's be clear, so is civilian oversight. Not a great body of research. So this is a brand new thing, and I'm going to applaud it. And I want people to understand that even in the families, I've extended the idea. Remember that the police fought against the IIO. Um, So we're asking them, they're underfunded. They should be immediately made uh, independent office of the legislature. Uh, They have to, as they've requested, pull from, I can't remember the specific case, but they recommended charges and the Crown said no. Let's remember that the Crown Council works each and every day with the police. These are their friends. I, it's not like an episode of Law and Order. The police investigate crimes. You know, the Crown prosecutes them. They need a dedicated Crown Council who just takes the referrals. So they cannot be left to draw. It's like rolling the dice on whether we're going right. to charge somebody or not. Uh, whether you're going to charge your best buddy that you just went out for beer with. You could play hockey together. That is not a system that
1: works. Um, I do
7: urge uh, patience with the IIO.
1: Right. Well, the work that's fascinating, I've been reading through the project here, and I encourage people to check that out. Listen, thank you so much for your time this morning.
7: All right. Thank you,
4: Simi.
1: That's leonard Clare Cunningham, the researcher for the project Not in the Public Interest. And this is taking a look at Indigenous deaths in police custody. And it is a frustrating process, right? We we talk about that, Miles Patrick case that we have just been going through. Uh, It has been uh, tough to get any answers from that, even with the coroner's inquest, even with the IIO uh, investigation on that. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time now for Making Sense of the Markets with Laurie Pinkowski. Laurie is a Senior Portfolio Manager at catacord Genuity and joins us now. Good morning, Laurie. Good morning, Simi. How are you? Good, thank you. How are those markets doing?
4: Well, markets are lower this morning, really coming off a rather kind of flat start to the week. Um, today's move is coming after the U.S. government. Uh, debt was downgraded from AAA rating to a AA+. Plus. And, Again, they're saying it's justified uh, by arguing that the country's finances will likely deteriorate over the next three years given tax cuts, new spending initiatives – Uh, economic uh, shocks possibly, and repeated political gridlock. We have seen U.S. uh, debt downgraded before, uh, so it's not that much of a surprise. However, um, you know, markets don't like to hear that kind of uncertainty, and so that we're seeing market indices down anywhere between one to two percent. But again, this comes off of a huge move we've seen over the last uh, couple of months as well. So so it's okay for markets to take a breather. Nobody panic. (laughs) It's normal to see it Red day once in a while. Are you rehearsing? Is
1: that what you're going to tell people when they call no, you? I, it,
4: it, it, every time that there's a you know one red day after people kind of get used to seeing the green on their screens. Uh, you know, you have uh, people start to wonder, is this the beginning of something bigger? And I would say at this point, no. Uh, Markets are up a lot this year, which we'll talk about. Uh, And uh, it's okay to, you know, you're never going to have every day that's up. You're never going to have every every month that's up or even every year. So so, uh, at this point, we're coming out of a bear market and things are recovering. So that's good news.
1: Okay, that is good news. Let's talk about earnings Uh, week, which has been continuing because there were some more second quarter earnings announced.
4: Yeah, you know, earnings season right now, we're more than halfway through with the results coming in stronger than expected. Um, Many investors are remaining optimistic about the health of the U.S. economy and that we're going to sort of uh, avoid a a recession, or if there was one, it would be a soft landing. Um, And when we're looking at earnings and some of the ones that uh, have come out recently, because we've had uh, about 160 of the S&P 500 companies report More than half of the companies have already reported, and 82% are topping expectations. Uh, So that's uh, definitely good news. Uh, Caterpillar, the world's largest heavy equipment manufacturer, reported better than expected earnings. Uh, Ferrari beat earnings. Um, I would think that this has to do a lot with the China reopening, and they have a backlog of orders. Uh, Starbucks beat bottom line, uh, but fell short on sales. The stock was up 3%. Uh, Uber missed analyst expectations is down 5% and, and Pfizer posted mixed results due to um, the plummeting uh, COVID product sales, obviously, because we're uh, out of the pandemic now. So, so with that being said, uh, we have some huge uh, reports Thursday after market, which is Apple and Amazon. So remember, I've said the market is focused on really three things right now, mm-hmm. and that is inflation interest rates along with earnings and you really have to be a stock picker in today's environment because um, not all stocks are created, even sectors. You can see, um, you know, some sectors are outperforming others. And and again, you have to watch for that rotation, as we talked about last week, Simi. Um, you know, when is it time to sell and trim some of your technology stocks because of ran so much? And maybe you should be looking at other areas like banks and so on. So so it's an interesting time, Simi, uh, but this is definitely when you need professional guidance uh, instead of going it alone, I would say. OK,
1: good to know. Let's talk about oil prices here as well. Well, because we talked about this earlier on the show about this kind of the seesaw that oil gas prices have been on with the underlying situation with the price in oil.
4: Yeah, exactly. And of course, in BC, we pay some of the highest gasoline prices in all of Canada for various reasons. Um, But when you're looking at just the price of oil, uh, we've seen record breaking summer heat uh, is causing uh, a lot of fuel makers to cut back operations, reducing oil pro- uh, processing globally by at least 2%. So that can really affect the price of oil that you, maybe you don't know. Um, triple digit heat uh, has led to refinery breakdowns and maintenance issues are really, exa- um, you know, magnifying the fact of that there are low fuel stockpiles out there right now, too. And, and so this is something we don't need because it's, of course, part of that inflation number. And so what we're seeing is uh, WTI is above $80 um, near the highest level since April. And the U.S. crude benchmark has rallied almost 14 percent this month. Uh, And that's the biggest event since January 2022. And of course, none of us that, uh, you know, have a car want higher uh, gas prices. But furthermore, as a portfolio manager, I don't want to see this either, uh, just because uh, we could see inflation uh, higher or possibly not moving lower, which is definitely what we need so that they stop increasing interest rates. In the U.S. and in Canada.
1: Okay, so can we talk about um, also look at the stock market kind of overall and what's been going on? Are there certain companies that are kind of carrying things?
4: Yeah, you know, this is um, something that I mentioned a few weeks ago. Is that the 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 indices are kind of out of whack if you're looking at them because if you look at the S and P 500, it shows it's up, you know, as 17, 18 percent year to date. Uh, whereas the equal weight is up about 8%. So that's a significant difference. So what what does that mean? Uh, it means that those kind of seven largest companies that, that are on the S&P 500 carry a lot of weight because they're so large. And those companies were mostly hit very hard last year, so they were down significantly. But then this year you saw techn- technology run, because a lot of them are tech stocks, um, the that it ran and also to do with AI, artificial intelligence, which we recently spoke about too. So some of those names or those seven specific names, I should say, are Apple up 49% this year, Amazon up 53%, uh, Google up 46%, Meta, Facebook up 160% year to date, Microsoft up 38%, NVIDIA up 204%, and Tesla uh, is up 107%. So if you... If you take a look at those uh, seven stocks, that's been the contributor to that high number on the S&P. However, most people will not just own seven stocks in their portfolio and also... Uh, the specific seven that are up so much. So when you have a diversi- diversified portfolio, you're not going to be up uh, 17 or 18 percent like the S&P 500. So I think that's something uh, to remember because you want diversification, especially if you're close to retirement or already retired. Um You don't want to take, um, you know, gambles that you don't have to. And had you had that Uh, portfolio of those seven stocks last year you would have been down significantly so so even though those seven are outperforming today it doesn't mean that they're always going to outperform in fact um, you know we sold our apple we've trimmed um, meta and microsoft as they moved higher and higher and so it's important to understand that just because they're the flavor of the day right now and they're really recovering from a, a you know a really bad year last year, it doesn't mean that you should all just jump into those seven. And and so the equal weight again is more up around 8% year to date, which okay. makes more sense.
1: Uh, and also quickly, I want to ask you about the, the Hollywood strike. You've got the actors on strike. You've got the writers on strike. We know the impact that that's having here in BC, but is it affecting the market?
4: Yeah. You know, um, when you take a look at uh, the strike and how long it's been ongoing, it is starting to affect some of the companies that are on the stock market and so you know in in the short term it's like who's going to win from the strike well the production houses are winning uh tiktok is actually winning because a lot of people are going uh, onto there for new content uh netflix is fairly well positioned you would think it wouldn't be but they are because they have a lot of stored content uh news network sports uh tv uh they're also benefiting but in the short medium term i mean this actors and the writers who who may not be the winners at this point a lot of them uh, are not the high-paid hollywood actors you think about and and uh, those that don't make a whole lot of money annually uh, and without the writers and everybody else uh, you, you, we're not going to have any new movies or a lot of new content tv shows all those sorts of things uh it's going to catch up here fairly soon and so that does impact the market in terms of stocks so like disney shares have struggled badly as earnings aren't growing uh shares are down about 14 uh, percent. as i said netflix shareholders have benefited but again we have to watch that um movie theater chains so like cineplex shareholders um they're not benefiting this is a position we had to sell due to the strike Uh, Warner Brothers stock has been losing money in the past year. Uh, But even more recently, I mean, it's down significantly from $75 to $13 a share. So the bottom line, the longer this strike goes, the worse it will be for everyone from producers to consumers and fans. And so let's hope they can come to some sort of resolution uh, so so movies can move on. And uh, and, you know, these companies are back on track.
1: Yes, that would be nice.
4: All right. Thank you so much for that. Thanks so much, Simi. Have a great day. You too. That's Lori Pinkowski. Lori
1: is a senior portfolio manager at Canaccord Genuity. You can contact our team directly 604 695 L O R I, or you can visit their website at pinkowski.ca.